God, thank you for gathering us under your word. Thank you for gathering us so that you could speak to us. God, I pray that uh, when we hear your word, God, I pray you would help us to cherish it and tremble at it and love it. I pray that your word would be uh, sweeter than honey to your people this morning as it comes forth. God, I pray that you would, uh, by your grace, expand our view of your glory and expand our view of your power and your love and the salvation you give us in Christ. God, I pray you would work in the hearts of the believers here to fortify them against the world and flesh and devil to be overcomers by faith. And God, I pray that today would be the day of salvation for some. And we believe that this is not too hard for you. So God, help us listen now. We need you. We need you um, to even just keep living through this sermon. How much more do we need you to change and profit spiritually so would you help us by your grace? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you open to the book of Revelation, please, chapter 3, last book of the Bible, Revelation. And we'll begin in verse 7 of chapter 3. Uh, this morning we'll look at Christ's words to the church in Philadelphia, a city in first century Asia Minor. Revelation 3, beginning in verse 7. So all over the world today, uh, there are churches that could be described like Jesus describes the church in Philadelphia in this letter. Jesus tells the church, I know that you have but little power. You have little power. It seems that other people decide what happens to you, and you can do very little about it. Many churches seem to have very little ability to do even the smallest things that they would like to accomplish. Sometimes things even as simple as stay safe. And even in places where there are not high levels of persecution, like here in America, if we looked closely across our land, we would see that the vast majority of churches here, even faithful ones, seem relatively powerless small, insignificant, seeming to lack the ability to accomplish much, seeming to make very little impact on the community around them, perhaps even uh, teetering on the edge of not being able to continue opening the church doors. But Jesus does not see things like man sees them. And in this letter, he invites the church in Philadelphia to see things like he does, Jesus has nothing bad to say to this church. Nothing. The church of little power is faithful. They keep His word. They do not deny His name. They patiently endure. And what Jesus does say to this church is even better than that. It's even better than hearing no words of rebuke. To hear the words of Solid hope that Jesus speaks to this church. 
So while the church of little power may feel like they cannot stop those who oppose them, and they may feel like their aspirations for good are stopped at every turn, Jesus tells this church that His good purposes for His people are unstoppable. When Jesus looks at the faithful church of little power, He sees an open door that no one can shut, a love no one can deny, a protection no one can prevent, a crown no one can take, and a pillar no one can move. The church of little power needs to hear Jesus say, I work for your good, and who can turn it back? Might you need to hear Jesus say that to you this morning? This letter follows the familiar pattern of the words we've heard Jesus speak to the other churches in Revelation 2 and 3 in Asia Minor. He addresses his words to an angel uh, to remind the church of their citizenship in heaven. And then he begins his address by highlighting truths about who he is. Look at verse 7, where we hear of a door no one can shut. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, the words of the Holy One, the True One, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one will opens. In these opening words, Jesus makes use of a verse from the book of Isaiah, and that's a sign of things to come. Jesus makes use of Isaiah several times in this short letter. Uh, here he uses Isaiah 22, 22, which says, and you'll hear the clear resemblance here, Isaiah 22, 22, I will place on his shoulder the key of the house of David. He shall open and none shall shut. And he shall shut and none shall open. Now this verse in Isaiah is actually not a prophecy about Jesus. It's actually a prophecy about a royal official named Eliakim who served under King Hezekiah who was the king over God's people in Isaiah's time. Okay, so Hezekiah was the king in David's kingly line. And I hope you remember that God promised to establish the throne of David forever. And the book of Revelation and the whole New Testament teaches us repeatedly that Jesus is this king from David, the Jewish Messiah. He is God the Son who comes to be born as a man in the lineage of David to reign over God's people as king. And so in part, Jesus says he has the key of David to say that he is the king that God promised who will reign forever, over, everything. Now in Isaiah's day, it was almost 800 years before Jesus spoke to Philadelphia. Hezekiah was the descendant of David who, who was reigning at that time. And Isaiah predicted a royal official of his, Eliakim, would receive the key of the house of David. And, and the guy who was the household manager at that time would be booted. So what does this mean? Well, it means that Eliakim would be given the authority to make binding decisions in, in David's kingdom, in Hezekiah's household. The key of David on his shoulder means he would be given control in the royal household. So the doors he opened would be opened. And if he closed the door, closed it was. What he said went. Okay, he had undisputed authority 
in the household of the king. Do you see why Jesus might introduce himself using language like this to the church in Philadelphia? Uh, He's saying, you have but little power, and that's because you follow me. You need to remember that I have all power. There is no power above me. The key of David is on my shoulder. I've been given complete control, undisputed authority. So the purposes of Jesus are unstoppable. No one can successfully oppose this king. What he seeks to accomplish will happen. If he gives the word, it's done. No one can open a door he shuts. No one can shut a door he opens. No one. Anywhere. Ever. So with the key of David, Jesus provides entrance. Entrance for his people into the kingdom of David, which is the kingdom of the Lord and of his Christ. A kingdom of unending peace and righteousness and glory, like we heard Brother Jason preach from Isaiah 11. And if Jesus lets you into this kingdom, no one can keep you out or put you out. And with the key of David, Jesus provides entrance for his people into the city of David, ultimately the new Jerusalem, the eternal dwelling place of God with his people. And that's the great promise that this letter to Philadelphia is is, uh, driving toward as a climax, down in verse 12. If Jesus lets you into this dwelling place, into this temple, into this city, no one can keep you out and no one can put you out. Now this talk of Jesus and keys also makes us think back to the vision of Jesus that John wrote about in chapter 1 of Revelation. And all the letters in Revelation 2 and 3 do this. Look back to the vision of Christ in chapter 1. There, in chapter 1, verse 18, Jesus speaks of keys saying, verse 18, I am the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore. I have the Keys of death and Hades. And so even when and if his people die, maybe if they are put to death, martyr, Jesus still is holding the keys. Even over Hades itself, he is in control of who goes in and of who stays out. So Christians are safe with Jesus even in death. Because Jesus has the keys over that too. He has risen from the dead and so he will unlock the grave, so to say, uh, for all of his people to come out and be raised like him and be made like him and to be with him in the new Jerusalem that's coming down from heaven. And verse 7 here, before Christ speaks of keys and doors, using Isaiah 22, he introduced himself as the Holy One, and the true one. Now again, in the book of Isaiah, among other places in the Old Testament, the Lord repeatedly refers to himself as the Holy One. The Holy One of Israel. And because this letter is full of references to the book of Isaiah, I think Jesus calls himself the Holy One to draw attention to how the Lord is talked about in the book of Isaiah. And that would encourage the church And help them to know that he will certainly accomplish everything that he is promising. 
because these promises are made by the Holy One. And in Isaiah, the Holy One tells His people in various ways, nothing is going to stand in the way of my accomplishing my purposes. To save you, to judge those who oppose me and those who oppose you, uh, I work. And who can turn it back? The Lord says this kind of thing all over the book of Isaiah. He says things like, if a mountain stands in the way of my saving purposes, I'm going to level it to the ground. And if a valley stands in the way of my saving purposes, I'm going to raise up the terrain. And if a sea or a river stands in the way of my saving purposes, I'm going to make it dry. Nothing can stop me. I am the Lord. The Holy One of Israel is God. There wasn't another before me. There won't be another one after me. There is only me. There is no other. And so when Jesus tells the church, I am the Holy One, He teaches them not only to see Him as the King that the Lord promised, He is also the Lord who unstoppably brings the promises to pass. And so because Jesus is the Holy One, whose purposes are unstoppable, He is also the true One. If He can do whatever He says... This means that his words are trustworthy and true. They will come to pass always. No one will shut the door he opens. In verse 8, Jesus begins to address the specific situation in the church in Philadelphia and again continues with the imagery of the door no one can shut. Look at verse 8 with me. Jesus says, I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power and you have kept my word and have not denied my name. So Jesus begins addressing this church like he does all the others in saying, I know your works. At least most of the others begin that way. And then in the second half of verse 8, he he comments on the works of this church. They're keeping his word. They've not denied his name even though they have little power. What does that mean? Well, we know from the next verse, verse 9, that that they're being opposed by the local synagogue. And something uh, similar, probably, to what we see in the Gospels, in the life of Jesus, or what we see in the book of Acts. Persecution to the early church often came from uh, Jewish people, especially the leaders of the Jewish synagogues. And we know from other letters that this church was almost certainly also being opposed and ostracized and persecuted by the pagan Roman Gentiles living all around them. Okay, so perhaps you begin to hear that and feel why Jesus says about this church, I know you have little power. You're being opposed and oppressed on all sides. Jew, Gentile, doesn't matter. They're against you. You appear small and weak. Maybe you appear like you're hanging on by a thread as a church, way out on the margins of society, making little discernible impact. And Jesus says, you're doing great. You have kept my word. You've not denied my name. You're being faithful to me. Jesus is pleased by faithfulness in this world. Not necessarily power in it. What really counts is what Jesus commends the church in Philadelphia for, for keeping his word. 
Now, is that what really counts in your eyes, too? In your own life, you should be far more concerned about keeping Jesus' word and not denying his name than you are about gaining or keeping any influence, security, prosperity, power, or favor in this world. Now, it's interesting in this verse to see how Jesus, I think, intentionally interrupts himself while he is telling them that he knows their works. If if you translated the verse with uh, a parenthesis, maybe to make this a little clearer, you could read verse 8 like this. I know your works, open parenthesis, behold, I have set before you an open door, which no one is able to shut, close parenthesis, that you have but little power. It's like someone interrupting me while I'm talking about the church having little power, and then right in the middle of that sentence, someone exclaims, look, an open door that no one can shut. Jesus says, I see, I see that you have little power. I see you are suffering. I see you are weak, and I want you to see something. In the midst of that, behold, that's what it says, behold, look, I've put before you an open door, which no one is able to shut. So Jesus wants the church, on the one hand, to know that he knows that they have little power. That's important, really important. It's important for Christians who are suffering, for Christians who are dealing with much weakness, that Jesus knows this. He knows, he cares about our weaknesses and sufferings. But isn't it wonderful that in the middle of affirming that truth, Jesus interrupts himself to affirm an even more important truth. Now consider another connection between these affirmations of Christ in verse 8. The word translated able in the first part of the verse is a form of the same Greek word translated power just a little bit later in the verse. So Jesus says, in effect, I know you have little power, but I've opened a door before you that no one has the power to shut. Or uh, I know you have little ability, you have little ableness, but no one is able to shut the door I've opened before you. Jesus wants the faithful church of little power to know, I've got the keys. I've got the keys. It may be hard for you to think this way, but you need to put on the eyes of faith and see that I am using those keys of control over everything, even right now. Right? Jesus doesn't say, hang in there. Sometime in the future, I'm going to open a door for you that no one will be able to shut. He says, look. It's open even now. He said, I have opened it. My unstoppable plans for your good are well underway even now. You're going to make it to the new Jerusalem. Those gates are open and you're headed straight for it because though you have little power, you keep my word and you confess my name. Do you see Do you see with the eyes of faith 
the good purposes of Jesus and His certain salvation in the midst of your suffering and weakness. If you are His, you need to remember that He is leading you to His city. And He has the keys, even over death. Nothing will stand in His way. Just keep holding on to His word and His name. In verse 9, Jesus continues to speak of His unstoppable plan for the church's good, but, but He changes the imagery now from a door that no one can shut to a love that no one can deny. Look at verse 9. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Now, the enemies of the church that Jesus speaks of here are not people who are just pretending to be Jewish, and neither do they profess to worship Satan. Uh, these, these are actually Jewish people in the sense of being physical descendants of Abraham, Jewish by blood. But Christ's words uh, here remind us, I think, of how we spoke about some of the synagogue leaders in his own day, especially the scribes and the Pharisees, right? Also Jewish uh, children of Abraham by blood. And in John 8, Jesus, in talking with the scribes and Pharisees, responded to them saying, Abraham is our father. By saying, paraphrase, actually, no, uh, you don't live like Abraham. The devil is your father. You live like him in how you respond to me. John 8. So the synagogue leaders in Jesus' day made it known they were more identified with Satan than Abraham, despite their ancestry, because of how they opposed Jesus. And similarly, the people in the synagogue in Philadelphia made it known that they were also more identified with Satan than Abraham, despite their ancestry, because of how they opposed Jesus' people, the church, the Christians in that city. You know, it's likely the Jewish leaders in Philadelphia persecuted the church in part to distance themselves from the Christians. Uh, as if to say, oh, no, no, don't, don't everyone think that they're actually a part of us. Uh, these Christians claim to belong to the Holy One of Israel, to, to know and serve and be saved by the God revealed in the book of Isaiah. They don't know our God. They don't have claim on Him. And it's very likely that at least some of the church members in Philadelphia had been excommunicated from the synagogue. Right? Jewish people who came to faith in Christ or, or Gentiles who came to faith in Christ and then tried to go participate in the life of the synagogue because the scriptures were read there, like we see in the book of Acts. Jesus does not want the church to be discouraged by the door of the synagogue being shut to them. He wants them to look at the door that's been opened to them. Right? He's in control of the one who belongs in the kingdom of God and, and in the Lord's temple and in the new Jerusalem. And that door is open for all who trust Him. It's, it's true. That is true. Jesus said in verse 9, these unbelieving Jewish synagogue leaders lie, 
But he, verse 7, is the true one. They can trust his words. And in the context of this intense persecution at the hands of the synagogue, Jesus wants the church to see something else really remarkable. Again in verse 9, like in verse 8, here again Jesus says, Look, behold, I, I see how you suffer. Now I want you to see your persecutors coming before you and acknowledging that I've loved you. I've chosen to save you and, and make you my people, and a day is coming when no one is going to be able to deny the way that I've loved you. You see it? Look! Jesus says it twice in this verse. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet. Now, this astounding promise is drawn from the book of Isaiah. Isaiah. There are a few verses in Isaiah where the Lord pledges this kind of thing, that he'll bring the enemies of, of his people Israel before his people to bow down before their feet. Isaiah 45, 15 is one of them. It says, They shall come over to you and, and be yours. They shall come over in chains and bow down to you. They will plead with you saying, Surely God is in you and there is no other, no God beside him. And similarly, uh, Isaiah 49, 23, 49, 23 says, With their faces to the ground they shall bow down to you and lick the dust of your feet. Then you will know that I am the Lord, and those who wait for me shall not be put to shame. I think the verse in Isaiah that has the strongest resonance with, with this text in Revelation comes from Isaiah chapter 60. Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 60. In verse 12, the Lord tells Israel through Isaiah, The nation and kingdom that will not serve you shall perish. Those nations shall be utterly laid waste. And then listen to this in verse 14. The sons of those who afflicted you shall come bending low to you. And all who despised you shall bow down at your feet. And they shall call you the city of the Lord. The Zion of the Holy One of Israel. Now that verse from Isaiah connects doubly with Christ's words to the Philadelphian church. And it connects with verse 9 clearly. Those who afflict the church will come bow down at their feet. But that other bit about being called the city of the Lord, that also comes up in this letter. If you look down at verse 12 of Revelation 3, Jesus tells the church, the one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it, and I will write on him the name of my God, and, catch this, the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem. I mean, again, there's resonance with Isaiah 60, 14 again. Those who afflict you will come, bow your feet, and call you the city of the Lord, the Zion of the Holy One of, of Israel, the new Jerusalem. Now, now it's somewhat ironic that when Christ applies these promises to the church in Philadelphia, it's the unbelieving Jewish people in the synagogue who are playing the role of the enemies of Israel in the Old Testament. And Christ presents them as the ones bowing before the church in Philadelphia, recognizing surely God is in you, seeing they belong to the city 
of the Lord. Now, what is the purpose of, of this bowing down? Maybe that makes you uncomfortable. Makes me uncomfortable too, okay? I didn't write it though. Now, it would be easy to get the wrong idea here, okay? Um, this word could be translated as worship, which many older English translations prefer. And if the idea of worship is what is in view here, then what Christ is foreseen is actually the salvation of some of the unbelieving Jews. When they recognize and turn to faith in the Messiah and see that the Lord is with His church, so they come to worship Him and, and humble themselves before the church they previously persecuted and then join them in singing to the Lamb who saves. And that would be very much like what we read in Romans 11, that the salvation of the Gentiles provokes unbelieving Jewish people to, to turn to Christ and, and be saved. Now certainly, what Paul says in Romans 11 is true and will happen, but I don't think that's what's in view here in Revelation 3, because all the promises in Isaiah about people bowing down to Israel seem pretty clearly to be a demonstration of God's judgment upon them and the vindication of His people and not a sign of those people's conversion. So what is this bowing down? Well, consider, for example, Philippians 2, how all will bow the knee to Christ one day, even those who remain His enemies, because they will see and be forced to acknowledge that He is the Lord. And likewise, I think this imagery of, of the persecuting enemies of the church bowing before the church communicates a an acknowledgement, an acknowledging that Christ is the Lord and that the church is His people, that theirs is the kingdom. And verse 9 says specifically that this bowing is an act of acknowledgement. The enemies of the Philadelphian church will acknowledge something very clearly. And what was that? They will learn that I have loved you. That also according to most commentators, and I agree with him, also is another allusion to a verse in Isaiah 43, 3 and 4, where the Holy One says, I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel. I give Egypt as your ransom, Cush and Seba in exchange for you, because you are precious in my eyes and honored, and I love you. Amazing. It, you know, during Jesus' life, he went to a synagogue, a Jewish synagogue, and he pulled out a scroll of Isaiah and, and read it. And so it's almost certain verses like this were read in the synagogue of Philadelphia from the scroll of Isaiah that, that should have been here. And Christ speaks to the church in a way that, that upends probably the expectations of, of the unbelieving synagogue leaders. They would be made to learn the Holy One of Israel loves the church of little power whom they persecuted. And this is a very powerful picture, isn't it? I mean, Jesus doesn't simply reaffirm His love for and commitment to His church here. Jesus says one day His love and commitment to His church will be something that no one can deny. Everyone will acknowledge that He is the Lord. Everyone will acknowledge that Jesus is also the great lover of his people. 
So when Christians face trials and weakness and suffering of various kinds, we need to see, we need to behold in the midst of that suffering, not only the unstoppable power of Jesus for us, but also the undeniable love of Jesus for us. The Christian of little power needs to hear God speak like he does in Isaiah 43, 4. You are precious in my eyes and honored and I love you. And like we saw in the previous verse where where Jesus says, I have already opened a door no one can shut. Here Jesus again speaks in the already done, perfect past tense, and says, I have loved you. His love for his people is already in play and at work, even in the midst of these Christians' little power and lots of suffering. The one who has the keys loves his people. So Jesus has called us to see a door no one can shut and a love no one can deny. In verse 10, we hear another very precious promise of Christ to the faithful church of little power. It's the promise of a protection no one can prevent. A protection no one can prevent. Look at verse 10 with me. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I believe the hour of trial this verse talks about coming on the whole world is is the end times judgment of God against all nations, at least the beginnings of it, which will last for eternity. It's what is later called in, in the book of Revelation the Great Tribulation. And the aim of these judgments, it's clear, it's the punishment of the ungodly. Because the verse says explicitly, this dreadful hour is designed to try those who dwell on the earth. And throughout the book of Revelation, interestingly, those who dwell on the earth, the earth dwellers, always refers to the enemies of God and and God's people. So I think earth dwellers here does not refer refers specifically to all people inhabiting the planet, whether believer or unbeliever, but rather, more specifically, these are unbelievers, those who are part of the world's rebellion against God, uh, together with Satan and his demonic horde. And this hour of trial is coming on the whole world. Jesus said it. And Jesus is the true one. He's not a liar. This is going to happen. The true one says, this judgment is coming, but he also says to his faithful ones, I will keep you from it. And if Jesus shuts the door on this judgment to keep you from it, then that door is shut, and no one can open it. No one can prevent this great protection. In verse 12 of, of this letter, the Lord tells the church in Philadelphia, that he will write the name of God on these Christians and also write his own new name. Now, now that signifies primarily ownership. Uh, Happily, we, we are made a people for the Lord's own possession. But if we connect this idea about having the name of God on us to the rest of the book of Revelation, then it likely also connotes protection from God's judgment. 
just like Christ is promising here in verse 10. Later in the book of Revelation, those who bear the seal of God or the name of God are protected, while God's judgments fall specifically on those who have the mark or or name of the beast on them, clearly in distinction to having God's mark and name on them. Revelation 7.3, an angel says, Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of God on their foreheads. Revelation 9.4, a judgment of God is ordered to harm only those people who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. And so the church of little power will have God's name put on them, and this signals, among other things, their protection from God's judgments. Now, the only other time that Jesus uses this phrase to keep from um, something is in an important parallel in John 17. And, and this John 17, the high priestly prayer, has several connections, uh, if you study it, to this letter to the church in Philadelphia. Jesus prays about his disciples who have kept his word, like the Philadelphian church has, that they would be kept from Satan, like the Philadelphian church has promised to be kept from the great hour of trial. And also, like in Revelation 3, Jesus prays in John 17 that his disciples would be kept in the name of God. As, and Jesus distinguishes them from, from the world, like the book of Revelation distinguishes believers from those who dwell on the earth. John 17, 15, Jesus says, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. And so like Jesus keeps his people from God's terrible enemy, so too he keeps his people from God's terrifying judgments. God's name on you is like a shield guarding you from his judgment against sinners. And it signals you are not his enemy, but are, in fact, his son. Now, the details of this protection that Jesus is promising in verse 10 is actually a matter of great debate among Christians. Uh, What does this protection look like exactly? What, What kind of protection is Jesus promising? How will that look when he protects them from the hour of great tribulation. Now, some faithful Christians see in this verse Christ is promising to remove the church from the earth and take them up to heaven before the hour of trial comes to to everyone who is, is left on the earth. And other faithful Christians don't believe that that kind of physical removal from from the planet is the protection that that Jesus has in mind in this verse. And to the dismay of some of you and delight of others, I'm not going there. It's it's a worthy conversation to have. Everything in the Bible is profitable for us. You shouldn't take everything about end times out of the Bible and kick it away because Christians don't agree on it as as if it's not important for us. It's, It's important and profitable. But I'm not going into that brotherly end times discussion right now. And thankfully... This protection Jesus promises is not given just to those who agree on how it will happen. Jesus says it's given to those who keep his word. Look at verse 10 again. The basis of Jesus' protective keeping 
is found in the first part of the verse. Verse 10 says, Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you. You, you hear the repetition of the word keep there. You've kept my word about patient endurance. I will keep you from the hour of, of trial. So these beleaguered Christians continue to follow Christ, enduring suffering and weakness, and they patiently continue on the road of discipleship. They continue to walk in ongoing faith in Christ, in ongoing repentance of, of sin, and it's going to prove to be worth it because Christ will keep them from God's judgment coming upon sinners, though they deserve it because he has saved them. Now, what is the word the Philadelphians are keeping? Christ could be saying, my word about patient endurance, or he could be saying, the word about my patient endurance. It could be translated either way. Now, if the latter, the word about Christ's patient endurance, that would be the gospel, the good news that Jesus himself has patiently and faithfully endured suffering, and he entrusted himself to God as a man, and did so all the way to the cross to die for the sins of his people so that they could be forgiven, saved from the judgment they deserve, rescued out of their participation in Satan's rebellion against God, and given an eternal inheritance in the dwelling place of God, which will come down out of heaven. So if you are hearing me and you are not a Christian, you should put all of your hope in that good news that I just shared. This word about Christ's patient endurance. Turn from your rebellion against this king and receive by faith the free gift of salvation in his name. And God will write his name on you. Alternatively, if we understand this phrase, uh, the way the ESV translates it, Christ's word about patient endurance. That would be Christ's call for his people to endure in faith, to patiently uh, persevere, keep going, keep trusting and following him, and trusting themselves to God, even in the midst of suffering and weakness and opposition. And really, I think it doesn't matter too much which it is, because while these two options are distinguishable, they're, they're inseparable. Because the good news about Christ's patient endurance and his call for his people's patient endurance go hand in hand, doesn't it? Jesus told his disciples he was going to a cross to save them. And then he said, if you want to be my disciples, you take up a cross and follow me. Patient endurance in following Jesus is what faith in the gospel looks like. When John introduced himself to the seven churches of Asia in Revelation chapter 1, he says patient endurance in Christ is part of what he and all Christians have in common with each other in addition to being partakers of the kingdom of God together. Revelation 1, 9, John says, I, brother, I, brother, I, John, oh, brother, I, John, your brother, and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus. The great protection Jesus promises in this verse should motivate us to patiently endure in following Jesus 
now. You don't need, first and foremost, to worry about keeping yourself from ultimate harm because Jesus has promised to do that for you. He's promised to keep you from God's judgments against sin if you entrust yourself to him. Jesus will keep us from ultimate harm. And so we are to focus instead on simply keeping his word, believing the gospel, clinging to him, patiently, patiently, patiently following him. Another day, and then another day, and then another day for all the days of our life. And for all the Christians who do that, which is for all true Christians, Jesus promises a crown no one can take. That's in verse 11, a crown no one can take. Look there. Jesus says, I'm coming soon. Hold fast to what you have so that no one may seize your crown. And that phrase at the end, no one may seize your crown, should make you think of Christ's unstoppable purposes for his people's good, wherein he said no one will close the door that he's opened. No one's going to shut the open door. No one's going to take this crown for all who follow him. And now this crown is not likely the crown of a ruling monarch, though that imagery wouldn't be inappropriate for Christians since we are to reign with Christ and participate in his rule. Uh, But rather, I think this crown refers to the victor's crown, like the wreath that would be placed on the head of victorious athletes or, or victorious military personnel. How encouraging for the church of little power to hear this. You've got something no one can take away from you. You seem to be stuck on the far margins of society and under the influence of your enemies and and at their mercy, but you're going to win because Jesus is going to win. And in fact, Jesus has already won. He was a faithful witness. He already patiently endured. He died, and behold, he is alive forevermore. He is coming soon. He has the keys of death and Hades. He has the key of David. No one can stop him. And so if you just stay with Jesus, there is no power of hell or scheme of man that could ever take away the victor's crown that he gives to you. So here's the only command in this entire letter, right here. It is simple and short and sweet. Hold fast. Hold fast to what you have. What do they have? Well, already they have entrance into Zion City. That door has been opened. So hold fast to what you have already. You have, you have Christ. His power and, and love are already at work for you. It's possible Christ commands the faithful church of little power to hold fast because he knows that their difficulty is going to intensify in the future. As if to say, you've kept my word, you haven't denied my name, now brace yourself for what's about to come and keep going. Because, Jesus says, it won't be long. Did you catch that at the beginning of verse 11? He says, I am coming soon. What a beautiful promise for Jesus to pair with the command to hold fast. I'm coming soon, so just hold fast. It's almost like Jesus is saying, man, just hang on. You're almost there. You are almost there. It will be over soon. I am coming. I am coming. Just a little bit longer, patiently endure. Just a little bit longer, hold fast to what you have. 
Don't give away your crown at the last hour. Jesus' final words to the church of little power are in verse 12. And he promises to make them like a pillar no one can move. A pillar no one can move. Look at verse 12. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from God out of heaven in my own new name. Now, we've already talked about these promises somewhat as, as we've thought through the previous five verses. But there is so much more in these words to enjoy. The one who conquers is the one who holds fast and keeps his word. It's the Christian. And the Lord will make him a pillar in the temple uh, of my God. Now, obviously, right, that's not good news if, if he means that literally. So the significance of the pillar imagery is, is clear. Pillars represent certainty, permanence, immovability. Uh, pillars are fixtures. You know what pillars do? They stand there. Pillars don't leave the temple, come back later, and then leave again, and so on. They just stay there. And that significance is explained in the next part of verse 12, isn't it? The one who conquers, I'll make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. I love that word, never. Never, never shall he go out of it. This is the chief desire of the psalmists, becoming reality. Right? The psalms express a longing to be able to be in God's temple and just get to stay there in God's presence and never leave. Psalm 27, 4. One thing I have asked of the Lord that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord, to inquire in His temple. The end of Psalm 23. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Now, what is this temple Jesus speaks of? It's the new Jerusalem. The new heavens and the new earth. The eternal dwelling place of God with His people. John sees a vision of it at the end of the book of Revelation and tells us about it. In, verse, in chapter 21, John says, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth passed away. There's no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God, the dwelling place of God, the, the tent temple of God. The tabernacle of God is among men, and He will dwell among them, and they shall be His people, and God Himself will be among them. So, so the temple dwelling place of God that, that the church will enjoy as a, a fixture will not be a building in the new creation. Because later in, in Revelation 21, verse 22, John says, I saw no temple in the new Jerusalem, for the Lord God the Almighty 
and the Lamb are its temple. And actually, there are measurements given for this temple that that comes down out of heaven, and it's a perfect cube. And the other thing that's a perfect cube that's made of gold, like the New Jerusalem in the Bible, is the Holy of Holies, the temple. It's like the whole of the New Jerusalem is one big Holy of Holies where God dwells in His manifest glory. And Jesus promises the Christians in the little church of little power that they'll all be like pillars in that place, never leaving, never leaving, certainly belonging, dwelling in his dwelling place all the days of their eternity. And along these same lines, Jesus in in verse 12 promised the church that he would write the name of his temple city on them. The one who conquers, I'll, I'll write on him the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven. And just listen to some of how this, this city is described. John says, I saw the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel. The city was pure gold like clear glass. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel. The twelve gates were twelve pearls, each of the gates made with a single pearl. And the streets of the city was pure gold, like transparent glass. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of the Lord gives its light, and its lamp is the sun. Nothing unclean will ever enter it. And then I saw a river of the water of life, clear as crystal, coming from the throne of God and of the Lamb, in the middle of its street... And on either side of the river was the tree of life, bearing 12 kinds of fruit, fruit every month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the the nations. There will no longer be any curse, and the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it. And His bondservants will serve Him, and they will see His face, and His name will be on their foreheads. And there will no longer be any night, and they will not have need of the light of lamp or the light of the sun because the Lord God will illumine them. And they will reign forever and ever. And Jesus tells the weak, insignificant, faithful church, he's going to write the name of this city on them. They belong there because they patiently endure in faith in Jesus. And their loving Savior is the king of this great city. He's got the keys and he's propped the door open for all his people to come into it and never leave for you to come into it if you will trust him. Now, how pitiful would it be to trade away being included in this temple city in order to gain being included in the synagogue of Philadelphia? That that is worse than Esau selling his birthright for a cup of soup. But I wonder how many of you might be counting the cost of a trade-off that's very much like that. Should, Should I really start following Jesus? Should I really keep following Jesus? Uh, On the other hand, I could have friendship with the world. That cannot hold a candle to the glory of belonging to this city. And the greatest, maybe the greatest promise in the Bible... In this city, 
the servants of God will see his face. And that same verse says his name will be on their foreheads. That's the final promise Christ speaks to the church of Philadelphia. In verse 12, Jesus says, The one who conquers, I'll write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God and my own new name. Now Christ, as I said before, writing the name of God on people signifies ownership. It's a clear sign that, that people who may once have been called by God not my people, are now called my people. And we wouldn't dare arrogate for ourselves God's name on our person. But this is Jesus, the Holy One and the True One and the Son of the Father who is writing the name of God on His people. Would the Father send anyone out of His temple and out of His city on whom the Son had written the divine name? No way. No way. The final promise is something the church should treasure. Jesus says, I'll write on him my own new name. That's a sweet and fitting reward for this church. They have not denied Jesus' name on earth, verse 8. And so Jesus will affix his new name, verse 12, to them forever. Jesus has made us a people for his own possession. And I think the promise of the name written on us signifies personal knowing and, and intimate fellowship. Right? If, if someone who is here at fir- church for the first time came up and said, look, your name's on my arm, I would say, that is really strange. I do not even know you. Right? <laughs> so the name of Christ being on us signifies, I think, a personal knowing and an intimate fellowship. And so receiving Jesus's new name indicates the church will experience a new, higher, better, sweeter, more glorious fellowship with Christ than we've, than we've ever known before. Do you long for that? Well, the promise is for you too. That's what verse 13 says. Jesus ends, ends this letter saying these words are not just for the first century church in Philadelphia. Look at verse 13. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So if you are a Christian, you are called by this letter to look, to see the open door he's placed before you, to believe no one can shut it, to see on the other side of that door the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven. Do you see that? Okay. Now hold fast to what you have until he comes. Let's pray. God, thank you for this word. We thank you that you are pleased with faithfulness and that you give us grace to be faithful to you. God, would you help us to hold fast to what we have until Christ comes? And I pray that you would help us to worship and, and love your son Jesus more purely and intensely in our heart because of the word you've spoken to us today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.